Welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey where we talk with people who are trying to live their most fulfilling life, which often tends to be on a much different path than it started out on. Whether it was changing careers, getting laid off from a job which sparked their entrepreneurial journey, or breaking through the noise to answer their calling. All of these types of situations and more, but they wouldn't have gotten to where they're at today if they didn't get started. We talk about the why and the how of these getting started moments and the lessons learned along the way. I'm grateful to have you listening in along on this episode, so let's get it started. On this week's episode, please welcome in Ben Markovitz, and his last name is spelled M-A-R-C-O-V-I-T-Z. Let me give you a quick background on Ben before we jump in the episode. He is a champion for growth, a leadership expert, and the founder and CEO of the RISE Institute, which advances the understanding that human beings can grow and develop beyond their estimations, and that expecting radical growth from those who struggle can and should be the norm. Using his expertise in consulting work, background in education, and boots-on-the-ground research on human behavior, Ben helps leaders accelerate their work and generate breakthrough performance in their employees. He believes the world will be transformed if people understand and recognize the possibilities for growth within everyone. I hope everyone enjoys this wide-ranging conversation with Ben. So without further ado, please welcome in Ben Markovitz. Hey, Ben, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you. Great to be here, Brian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, nice to meet you. And uh, excited to chat about your journey a little bit. Um, you know, it's so funny with all the different folks I get a chance and the pleasure to talk on this podcast. Everyone has so many different ways they got to where they're at today. And I'm sure your journey started off different than um, than what you're doing today. And, and we'll get into that. I'm actually curious on something because I know I really want to talk a lot about growth. I know you have a ton of experience with that. But how did before you could help other people and kind of, you know, be that catalyst for them to change, you probably had to change yourself and learn this. Where did you learn these ideas from why, you know, how growth happens, you know, why it's different than the traditional way we think of growth? Can you start there maybe? And that might be a good foundation for us to build on. Yeah. I mean, I think the truth is that um, I learned it by getting it wrong for uh, the the large majority of my life. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a uh, prep school where, uh, you know, getting, getting A's was the thing to do. I went to college where that was pretty much the same deal. Um, I felt like the most important thing I could do was kind of beat other people at what they were doing, show up strong wherever I went. Um, and, uh, at a certain point I recognize that this is not making me happy. It's, um, it's not making me better at anything. I'm pretty much going through the world, uh, trying my hand at something, whether it's baseball reading, uh, you know, teaching or making friends and like considering myself good or bad at it within the first couple of tries and then feeling either great or terrible about it forever after that. Um, and, uh, when I became a teacher and I spent more time doing that, uh, I recognized that is just a terrible way, uh, to, to plan for your kids to learn. Uh, and in fact, most of, most of the students coming into your classroom are looking at your classroom the same way. Uh, I'm going to be good or bad at that. And I'll know, uh, in the first couple of minutes, 
And then you're going to have to kind of work on me uh, to help me get over uh, either my sense of success or sense of failure uh, every day after that. And so I think it was finally being faced with people for whom my own ideology was totally limiting and actually being responsible for their growth um, that I had to start kind of preaching a different thing than I was listening to. Um, and, uh, and then I, I started to have to listen to it myself as a result. Do you feel it's more, I don't want to put the kids nowadays, I have an eight year old, but like, you know, is it kids nowadays have it, I don't want to say worse, but like that instant gratification world we live in. Cause I'm trying to think, I don't know how old you are. I'm trying to think back and, you know, when I was growing up in like the nineties and stuff, it's like, maybe it was just growing up in a small town, but like, I didn't remember like, I remember, like, if I wanted to get something, I had to go after it. And I wasn't comparing as much to other people. I don't remember, at least maybe my brother. Um, I was but I don't know if it's nowadays, because everything's out there. Um, can you share a little bit what you've learned maybe on that side? Or I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the, the ability to see something performed at its highest level is, you know, a click or keystroke away always. Um, so, you know, if, yeah, if I, if I want to learn to throw a Frisbee really well, you know, I, and I go online to see how that's done. I'm instantly seeing the best people in the world at it and, uh, able to judge myself really poorly (laughs) right after I do that. And, um, I do, however, think that there are more opportunities to fix that than, than there were before. And, um, there are a lot more tools for looking at yourself, right? So like, we can videotape, record, and reanalyze almost anything uh, these days. And there are a lot more people who can be mentors to you. And that's what I think is really at the heart of this. I think it's super inspiring to hear lots of stories of self-starters and folks who kind of through the force of their own will and, and bootstrapping can pull themselves out of a rut. Mm-hmm. But I do think that um, at the at the mass scale, most of that's happening because leaders and and mentors and coaches are doing that with people. Um, and I do think there's a lot more opportunity to get mentorship mm-hmm. and to find a multitude of different leaders uh, who can help you kind of reframe where you're going if you thought you weren't going anywhere. Uh, and I I do like have a lot of hope for that in the world. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I see that too. I'm curious, do you, was there like a mentor too that you remember were like so impactful, I guess, early in your journey yeah. that helped guide you or? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, I, um, it happens so much through athletics, right? Your, your sense of early failure and early success and getting sort of your report card immediately on site, you know, athletic events. And, I did this crazy thing when I was a teenager and I wrestled for my high school, um, which was really only something I did because I liked my coach. Uh, I wasn't particularly interested in the sport. I thought it was crazy, all, all the stuff we had to do to train. Um, but I remember going into a match with a guy that I had lost to over and over again, who I felt pretty sure like that I shouldn't be losing to. It was kind of like all in my head. Uh, I would go out there again. I'd make one mistake and I think it was all over. And I remember... Uh, my coach giving a speech to my team about me before this match. And it was very brief. And he said, you know, Markovitz loses this match every time. He loses it in the first period. And, you know, what's changed about him over the last couple of months is that he has won every match in the first period. And so he's gotten enough points in the first minute to win every match after that. And so I think with that, he's going to win today. And 
I didn't know any of those things about myself. Maybe they weren't even true. Uh, but what it did was created this version of myself that I went into that match with uh, that I had to somehow live up to what he had just said and win this match in the first period. So I effectively just like overcame all the errors I was making just to be this guy that he said I was. And I look back on that most of the time uh, in the classroom and since I've been coaching leaders outside of the classroom, uh, sometimes people need to hear who they are in a different way uh, in order to change what they're doing. And uh, that was the most profound mentorship that I've gotten in my life. People yeah. who do that. Well, we're so, we're so hard on ourselves. We're literally our worst critics. You know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, we can beat ourselves up so much. I think it does, you know, everyone needs that, you know, kind of the Obi-Wan Kenobi, if you will, the, you know, the Gandalf, whoever insert Dumbledore, whatever you want, that guide to kind of get them along and ultimately, yeah, change the mindset, change the thinking around. Um, what did you, uh, cause obviously you went to some prestigious universities, you know, um, when you were going into like Yale, did, did you, what would you, what did you want to be when you grew up? Quote unquote, what was your, what was in your mind? That was it. I mean, I had absolutely no idea. I like everything up to that point for, you know, I don't know, I guess the, the prior five or six years was about trying to get into a place like Yale. Right. That was, that was, that was it. It wasn't a, like, this is what I see in the future. It's just so oh. focused on beating everyone, as you said. Yeah, and I can remember in my first couple of months on campus, I just kept trying to do that again. Uh, so there were like a whole lot of things to apply to. And none of them were of particularly strong interest to me. Like you could apply to be in an acapella singing group. Uh, you could audition to be in a whole bunch of plays. You could apply uh, to join this particular course structure where you read all these old books and it was kind of the elite of the elite in, in uh, your freshman year. And I just kept applying to all these things and sometimes it happened and sometimes it didn't, but it completely defined my experience there, mm. just what I felt like I had to win. Um, and uh, I didn't know how else to think. And to some degree, it was helpful to be there because and in a in kind of insanely competitive environment like that one, at a certain point, you have to be like, I, I'm not going to win this whole deal. Uh, so let me just focus on what I think is really going to make me happy. But I also probably could have learned that uh, in a couple other ways that didn't feel as pressurized as, as that one. And I think most people need to. Yeah. Well, we don't always plan that out when the, when the lessons come, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> do you remember, like, was there a specific breakthrough moment you remember? Because you talked about obviously this change and kind of realizing this, but was there a specific moment that was like an aha moment for you? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I, I had started a school in New Orleans in 2008, and it was designed to be a school where kids who are really far behind, uh, really impoverished, a lot of challenges in their lives, starting in ninth grade, they were like maybe five or six grade levels behind. So, you know, picture a ninth grader on a third or fourth grade reading level. Um, and we were designed to get kids ready for college, right, in four years, get them really caught up and allow them to compete with folks who had never had those disadvantages and didn't have to catch up. And we were doing an okay job of that. It's obviously difficult to do. We weren't, we weren't winning all the time, but we were doing an okay job of that. And a lot of it was through my preaching of all that stuff I described before. Like this, this stuff is all about growth. Uh, it doesn't matter where somebody comes in. Uh, we can put one foot in front of the other and, and make progress really fast. And that was working for a lot of our staff and a lot of our kids. I, at a point like four years into it, my wife and I had our first kid and she had a heart surgery where the cardiac part went fine, but she had a brain injury. And they told us uh, a few days later that 
she was never going to develop at all, that mm. she wasn't going to see or walk or talk or move voluntarily, experience emotion, whole deal. And obviously, like, horribly grim couple of months following that. Uh, and I think one of the strange parts looking back on it was I realized, like, I didn't believe most of the stuff that I was preaching to our teachers and our kids every day. Um, I, I knew that was good talk for the task we had ahead of us. It's like a good leader speech to make to, to rally the troops. Um, but when it actually came time to invest in my own kid and think like, gosh, what I said before about evidence shouldn't matter. We can put one foot in front of the other and still win. I just, I was so desperate that I just didn't think it was actually possible. And it was only because I think my, my wife is a particularly strong person. Uh, we had a couple doctors who were really encouraging and it ended up actually being true of our daughter that the more we tried little things, the more we saw that the prognosis of no chance of developing was maybe more like a 10% chance of developing. And the more we believed in that, uh, the more we behaved like we had been told, 100% chance of developing. And of course, with all the resources and privileges that we had in our lives, we could do a lot on a 10% chance. And so I eventually realized, um, oh, that's, that's how we should be doing school. That every kid who comes to us with a 10% chance of competing with kids who had never gotten far behind or 10% chance of going to college and, and succeeding there, 10% chance of entering the economy with all kinds of opportunities. Um, we can just behave like parents of kids who are given that slight chance and really want to pursue it behave. And, um, and that's what we started training our staff around. So I actually started believing that when people tell you doctors and white coats and all kinds of stats tell you things are impossible, they often are quite possible. And, and that was pretty revelatory. I think, you know, deep down, I thought it was just like a couple inspiring miracle stories that, that, uh, that you hear that defy that logic, but actually happens all the time. And it takes two really specific things. One is one foot in front of the other. So like being really careful about tracking incremental growth and progress. And the other is kind of like being able to ignore conventional understanding of what's limiting you. Um, and I was forced to do that as a parent. Um, I, I was not forced to do that as an educator and I learned a lot from my parent experience. Um, do you feel that's possible? So you were able to do it at the school you were at. Is that feasible across the U.S.? Yeah, <laughs> I, I really think it is. You know, I, I, I think the biggest thing that I've recognized about uh, creating uh, what, I, what I tend to call radical growth, which is that growth that doesn't seem possible given the evidence so far, uh -huh. um, that it is, it is really those, those two things. And it's the ability to say, um, okay, we've, we've got a kid who um, makes 20 mistakes per class and uh, the next day makes only 18. Uh, one teacher sees that and says, oh, you improved 10% from yesterday to today. Let's keep going with that. Another teacher doesn't even notice because it's just a whole bunch of mistakes. And what's always true is the kid never notices. The kid just thinks it's a whole bunch of mistakes. So the question is, is the teacher going to notice that was a 10% improvement? And the answer is, that's not hard to do. Uh, it's not hard to do that when you're looking for it, but most of us don't look for it. It's an exhausting job. It's hard to keep a keen eye on those things. And I think in general, 
we're, we're all feeling so desperate and exhausted that we don't look for positive trends. Uh, and, and teachers are generally incredibly optimistic, well-meaning uh, individuals, and they get beaten down by their work, and it's really hard to look for positive trends. So the question is, do they have a leader, a principal or a superintendent, or even you know, just a mentor in their lives who can say, hey, your kids are growing by 10% every day. You're growing by 10% every day. And so is there a culture of tracking incremental growth and defining someone's uh, identity by that? You are a grower, uh, the same way my wrestling coach did for me. You win, you know, you win matches in the first period. Yeah. Um, and now let's live up to that. So I, I don't think any of the component parts are rocket science, but I do think it is psychologically difficult to do. And it takes a kind of like athlete's mental strength to set yourself up with that every day. But I don't think we couldn't teach the entire country to do it, honestly. Yeah, I mean, to, to your point, it probably starts at the top. If, if, if you have someone preaching that or at least showing that positivity, it trickles down. Because I have to imagine, like I think about it too, like the school he goes to, if the principal's awesome, well, the teachers benefit from that. But the school next door, if there's not a good principal, and I'm using that as just generalities, well, then they're worse off. And there's no consistency in the process, basically. Absolutely. And, you know, of course, that's true of just all companies, right? And I think the, the major thing that schools have an opportunity to do is translate what's working for kids to the adults on, on their staff. And that is often like the biggest firewall that we see is that you have schools where kids are shocking adults every day with the amazing things they do. And a principal's not noticing that the teachers are often pulling off the same. Uh, and so those teachers are going under acknowledged, their fire isn't staying lit. And then yes, the kids, the kids suffer for that. I think what's really fascinating though, is like looking at what those amazing kind of uh, positive outliers are. If you have a class of kids who's sixth grade levels behind and somehow 30% of them all catch up in one year, uh, you know, that's obviously a work of art and, and a, a set of data, honestly, that we should all pay attention to. How did that teacher do that? And it really does break down to some pretty concrete, um, fairly effortful moves, but that are not complex. And what I found really helpful in my own professional life, where now I work with so many leaders who are not in education, is how universal uh, that is, and how it is almost a prejudice of all adults leading other adults, uh, that they, they don't believe that that's the sort of thing you should call out. That's the sort of thing you should encourage and engender in your staff, uh, that you're constantly growing, you're constantly making incremental progress, and that's worth celebrating. Yeah. We feel like we kind of have to be the guardians of absolute greatness. And uh, if somebody's not absolutely great at any given point in time, we can't encourage them or we can't note how well they're doing. Yeah. And certainly if somebody's an underperformer, we don't want to know what incremental progress they're making because... We think that sends the wrong message and so on. But these are the sorts of things that those teachers in, in those rooms with kids who are really beating the odds are doing all the time. And uh, it really helps most leaders to pay attention to those moves. Yeah. Well, and one of the things too, and I'm curious, maybe this actually relates to working with different leaders at organizations, but there's more than, you know, my, my grandmother used to say there's more than one way to skin a cat, right? There, the, uh, there's so many different ways to solve what would seem like the same problem. And, th and that's what I found maybe just with the lens of a parent looking at education and, and then kind of trying to look back when I was in school was like, there's only one way. And all, if you're, if you're not on that track, you're some misfit, you're, 
you know, off the, and then, and then almost the kid gets lost. And that's what I feel bad about because I think there's a, a lot of creativity of almost every kid, but they don't get to shine through. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but. Oh yeah. I mean, the, the reality being that those who are chosen to mentor those kids, which is essentially a profession of teachers, right? It's the singular profession and it's their job to mentor kids across the board. So, you know, 80% of all mentorship kids are getting is from this one group of people. And yeah, they're not necessarily trained uh, to prize uh, creative or innovative or unconventional moves above what is important to nurture in their classroom traditionally. And that's perfectly fair, right? It's a, again, very hard job, very difficult to keep track of everything. And you're often teaching 100 to 200 kids at any given time and individualizing all of that seems like a mess. Um, and I think those who find ways to systematize what our actual goal is, uh, and of course, people who are finding ways to track growth are going to, I mean, it's, it's a different spreadsheet, quite literally, and you can have growth pop out at you if you just take the conditions on the spreadsheet and make yeah. sure that it makes the growth cells orange or green <laughs> instead of the ones that just pass a cutoff. Yeah. And um, it just takes a different setup to do it. But it is scalable um, because uh, people are doing it all the time, and it's more often that you're not going to see it than, than you do. Yeah. Well, and I, I take the lens from you know being at some different organizations. You know, the best leaders I've had have been the ones that say, "Yeah, here, here's our goals. Here's what kind of where we want to go." But Brian, figure it out. You know, kind of figure it out. I'm not going to micromanage and tell you you have to do a, you know ABC. You figure out how to get there. And generally, what I found is you come up with better solutions than we originally thought. And this oh, flip side, though, I've also had the the ones where it's like, no, do this, this, this. Now we those are the folks I've butted head of with, heads with. But <laughs> what are you seeing with different organizations you work with on you know, or, or maybe it's a principle or two that you've discovered that they should be looking at to lead teams better. Yeah, you cheer there. Yeah, it's it's so much about uh, building the identity of of the team. Um, again, the same way that wrestling coach built my identity in that one moment, yeah. right? Uh, um, if I, I I was really moved by one of the earliest consulting gigs I had, where um, I was working with a company that was about to IPO, and they had to actually um, uh, lay off about two hundred people, um, and they were struggling to kind of figure out what their cutoff was, like how they would decide which group of 200 to lay off. And we went through a project where we were defining kind of the key behaviors that had gone into the highest performance so far. So we looked at the, you know, uh, the best uh, numbers uh, uh, on their, on their board and said like, what are, what are the behaviors that are leading to this? And they identified three behaviors that people use frequently. I can't remember them off the top of my head, but they're, let's say they're going above and beyond, uh, you know, really uh, biasing towards collaboration rather than just siloing um, and uh, coming up with solutions rather than complaints. Um, and they were going to use these uh, from performance evaluations to kind of figure out their cutoff and who they were going to dismiss. And before they did that, they put those three behaviors that kind of uh, messaged that this was coming in uh, a company-wide memo. And long story short, within a week or so, they found this incredibly difficult to do because now everybody knew what the behaviors were. They had sort of fixed this identity of a high performer at the organization, and they had started to actually use those behaviors way more. And so it became actually very difficult to figure out who to terminate at this point because they had actually said what it takes to succeed here. And um, I just like 
realized how little this is the instinct of the average leader um, to just like name what behaviors are making people successful and build the team's identity around this. But you see, again, you see athletic coaches do that all the time. Uh, you hear them talking about what makes us a strong team. Uh, you have uh, folks who, you know, join any group the first year, they hear about the legends of people who have come before them. Uh, you might even have a boss who individually, like, will just use praise really well and say, like, hey, you know, one of the reasons I gave you this promotion is that you're constantly adapting to new environments and, like, making the most of them. Well, you know, that person is going to, of course, go ahead and, like, do that again and again and again because they realize that's what's making them successful. So I mean, what, a, what a leader tells you you're doing well, even if you haven't nailed it yet, is just kind of declaring what you're going to keep doing well. Um, and again, this is stuff we see with teachers and kids all the time. You see this probably with your own children. Uh, and the reality is like we, we don't see opportunities to do that with adults as much as, uh, as much as they actually exist. And if we did that, it's actually relatively low-hanging fruit uh, where we can succeed and make the kind of headway that we don't often make. How, so, in, and maybe I missed it, but how how were they judging that example you gave? Like, how were they judging who they were going to lay off? Was it just like they're picking out of a bowl? Like, what was the... Yeah, <laughs> no, it was performance evaluation. So they were looking over, they had, they had fairly detailed uh, performance reports that they okay. used over the past couple of years. And it took like very little uh, to actually surface those key behaviors it was honestly just like a sorting uh in a again a spreadsheet okay. where were we seeing the most common uh behaviors that led to actual outcomes and these were the three behaviors and um for folks who had kind of exhibited those the most and i think to some degree like a gut check on managers who could see potential for those and others was going to define their um their uh, ability to lay somebody off so when <laughs> the basic thing was, when people started learning what the behaviors were, that became their, their new identity, and they had to live up to those. And I, like, experience this as a parent all the time. I have, like, um, you know, a, a kid who, uh, he's three, he's almost three, and he, his name's Max, and he doesn't share well. Uh, and uh, he's playing with his friend the other day and said, you know, hey, um, why don't you share your Duplos uh, with Danny and Max? And Max didn't do it. Uh, and then I started telling Max's older brother, Ronan, like how Max is really learning to share. He's becoming a really good sharer. And then Max starts sharing his Duplos. And then somehow like the request that you do something doesn't always pan out, but the assumption that you're already doing it does. Um, and I think that's just like this thing that we have as people, like we really do want to live up to the best version uh, of ourselves we have in our minds. And that's why leaders are so important in that process because they can give us the best idea we have in our minds, because as you said, we're all our own worst critics and we're not going to think of those things on our own. We usually don't. So if someone's going in, let's say someone's listening and they're, they're in the process of starting their own business, they're going to hire some employees. Maybe they are scaling. Is there any encouragement on how they would structure to do those evaluations properly or maybe get the right people in the right seat? I don't know. You could take it wherever you'd like, but. Absolutely. No, I think um, it's really fun uh, actually to pursue those, uh, those types of plans, uh, those kind of hiring and structuring plans, I think, because it's, there's, a, there's a moment where you as a leader can talk about either the ideal team or the best people you've worked with before, right? So if you had to pick three to five people from your past professional life who you'd want to be on this team, who would they be? And then actually think through the kind of documentary screen in your head 
of their most common successful behaviors. Um, so, you know, I, I seem to have chosen these three to five people because they all seem to, uh, you know, get up uh, early and stay out late and uh, work till the job is done. Or they all seem to uh, multitask particularly well. Uh, or they all seem to evince optimism in moments of crisis. Uh, and then you actually start to create, you know, maybe a list of sometimes 20 to 200 behaviors. You look for patterns in those and you kind of boil it down to a really small number of them. Mm. And so, you know, if I, if I had these three to five behaviors in every single buddy, every single person who worked here, um, this would be the ideal team. And then you build your hiring process around that. Um, and you build your onboarding process around that. And you build, of course, your performance evaluation, performance management process around those things, just getting really explicit about them. And because you've already kind of thought of all the, the people you've worked with before who've shown you those things, you have tons of concrete examples from their lives, uh, tons of kind of positive peer pressure to put in place for, for new folks on the team to describe what it means to show those behaviors here. And this is, of course, again, what the best classroom teachers are doing every year when they welcome, you know, the, the new third grade uh, by describing the most successful third graders last year. Yeah. Um, or, you know, if, if three kids have their heads down on a desk, you don't talk about those kids. You talk about the kids who are alert and sitting up and you call them out by name and suddenly everybody's paying attention. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch. But I, I do think um, if you do that iteratively, maybe, you know, once every two years, you know, who, are the, who are the most successful people here and what are the three to five behaviors that they're really all using in common, that becomes the identity uh, of the team and what we all aspire to. Hmm. That's really great. I, I like that, um, that structuring, kind of looking at those folks from the past. What, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a curveball on the other side of it because I'm thinking in there, right, there's folks that maybe they're just enjoying the podcast or doing a side hustle. Maybe they're working for an organization or they're thinking of going to another one. Is there something they should be looking at to say, will this be the right fit for me as an org? Like, so does the organization have a good setup or am I walking into a dumpster fire? Yeah. Is there any interview questions they should think about or any, any coaching you'd give on that side? I think one of, one of the things I coach leaders um, who are hiring around the most is to expose candidates to the most challenging aspects of the job actually in a real-time context. Um, so rather than just an interview question, you know, what would you do if, or um, even just a statement saying, you know, here we deal with a lot of, say, angry customers, and uh, we need somebody with a strong resolve who's also open-minded to do that. You actually have to put them on the phone with those customers, um, and you have to kind of not, not look for perfection, but give them coaching and see if, in fact, you know, when they do it again, they grow to meet that challenge. And that's probably your best evidence of whether that person's going to fit the bill. The, on the flip side, which is really your question, if I'm that candidate, how do I know what I'm walking into? And I would say demand that of, of uh, the folks who are hiring you. Uh, can I take part in some practice around the most challenging aspects of these jobs? Mm. Um, you know, can you give me a task to do that would show me how difficult it is to work here? Um, and then you're not only kind of getting an answer to that question, how difficult is it to work here, but you know, if you're offered the job and you say yes to it, you're actually saying yes to that process. And as a result, it does, I think, wonders for your mental well-being at a job that everything that's hard about it, you knew going in and you actively chose. Um, that's, I think, where, where places are, are winning best place to work, you know, prizes and, uh, you know, known for their high morale and high retention it's not often because people are quote unquote 
made so happy by working there. It's that they choose and are transparent about the realities of the workplace and only the people who will be happy there actively choose the job. Um, and uh, that level of transparency is really rare, but I, I do think you can demand it um, from either side of the hiring process. That's a really good point. Yeah, because if you go in, you know, I've been in several interviews in the past, and you know, you, you can tell the companies that are more prepared or not. It's like, are you guys just going through like a the, the same 10 questions and it's kind of just a check the box thing, or you actually want to hire people that are the fit for this role? Oh, and it's very, very interesting when you when you when you pull back the onion layers on that type of stuff. Yeah. Well, I've always said like the um, the interview process in general is uh, really flawed, right? <laughs> so you you typically have to uh, you know look for a great person, but I think the truth is like anybody competent enough to get the job is competent enough to tell you exactly what you want to hear in an interview, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's just like. Prove it, right? Give, give me, give me the name of a company in five minutes on the internet, and I bet I can give you all the answers you want to all your questions. Yeah. And so, our our folks actually recognizing that that's not the most helpful way uh, to decide whether this is a, a match made in heaven, and also not not helpful to their future performance management because they're going to bring in a lot of folks who who don't know what they're getting into and may not be ready for it. Yeah. Yeah. And it was something I think it was Adam Grant posted about. Um, Something around it was it was actually kind of funny, but I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher it. But basically, around like a lot of companies are hiring because they want to check like this spot. They have this education or this whatever. And the reality is, it, to your point, it's on their behaviors. It's on the personality that they can learn anything. They can adapt and change. But it's on getting the right people that are right for that culture fit over actually having maybe experience. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes you can use those as proxies, right? Like if you. Um... Uh, if you were to look at somebody's resume and see that, you know, they went to, um, you know, say a, a really selective uh, four-year college, that is evidence of some behavior. It's, it's evidence of uh, probably two in particular, that one, you, uh, you probably did better than average in high school. So you probably were good at homework. Uh, you were probably good at uh, kind of nurturing relationships with teachers to get good recommendations. Uh, and you were good at a standardized test uh, at, at some point. Uh, that doesn't really bear much on like how well you did in college because it would take a lot to fail out of a college uh, and uh, your behaviors don't play a huge role beyond that. So I think people are often using it as a proxy for uh, what, what it's not, uh, which is like some measure of raw intelligence or ability to work hard um, when it's in fact evidence of a few things, but not necessarily those. Well, so I want you to go back to your younger self. You got to go back to pre-Yale. You're in high school. You're kind of prepping, getting ready, knowing what you know now. And I like to say, you know, you have a post-it note, very short, um, small piece of paper. What advice would you give to the the younger Ben out there of, you know, maybe to help nurture them on their journey a little bit more? I think it would certainly be um, find as many mentors that you respect as you can and uh, give yourself openly to them. Um, because I think I, I entered most spaces in my life with a lot of imposter syndrome. Uh, it, it drove me crazy and it, and it drove me down in my performance. And, uh, you know, again, I, I kept being angry at myself for not picking myself up by bootstraps and telling myself, you know, I have the will to overcome this. Uh, when again, I think most people... Uh, 
they're not going to succeed because of that uh, at the at the outset. They're going to succeed because somebody convinces them that that's worth doing, and that somebody will have expectations of you that are higher than your own. Um, and so, finding mentors who are able to convince you that you deserve higher expectations than you're giving yourself, uh, I think, is the most dependable catalyst for growth and performance. And and truly, like feeling at home in, in your uh, striving, feeling like it's okay to strive and feeling like it's okay to try something new. Um, again, great stories of people who self-discipline and do that on their own, but the vast majority of success stories are gonna come from those who had leaders who really invested in them that way. And so going after that and not being afraid to rely on those people, that's that's something I should have done a lot more. Yeah. Did you you mentioned the wrestling coach, but did you luck into some mentors as an adult or did you seek out folks? How did, how did you get some of those early mentors in adult life? Yeah. Well, I, so a lot of it was, uh, you know, uh, right place at most, uh, strange time. Um, so, you know, I was, uh, building a, a set of schools in new Orleans immediately after hurricane Katrina. And, uh, because our schools were, uh, decently successful, uh, it became a tour stop actually for a lot of uh, leaders who are coming to New Orleans to see how infrastructure was rebuilding and how different aspects of society were innovating uh, despite all the challenge and education was certainly one of those areas. And so I had a host of uh, civic leaders, activists, authors, uh, and, um, and great thinkers uh, come through literally our school campuses. And uh, uh, yeah, the best thing I ever did was uh, decide to be really annoying to them and, uh, you know, followed up with emails to thank them for coming by, ask them for tips and just made them my mentors. And uh, and I fell into each and every one of those. But, you know, I did do the kind of persistent mosquito thing and and never leave them alone. And uh, I, you know, built most of my career since then off of conversations that I had with those people doing things that I would not have believed I could or should do because they told me that I, that I might try them. And again, you know, that's, that's what kids need more of. That's what I think we all need more of. Yeah. Ben, where can everyone uh, connect with you online if they wanted to say hello, see what you're doing? Sure. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I am, I am on LinkedIn and probably do most of my social there. And um, then I have a website, which is uh, Ben Markovitz. Dot com. It's with a with a C and a V. That, that can be tricky. Uh, and uh, I usually tell folks on that website there's a little sort of survey that you can take that gives you a little bit of insight into whether the aspects of growing people really uh, radically, whether they are natural to you or whether you have to invest in some of your own learning to do that well. Mm. And that should give folks some things to do uh, pretty soon afterwards. So I think that's a good place to start. Awesome. And that's for individuals or organizations or for individuals, uh, for folks in their own leadership. Okay. Uh, you know, do I have what it takes to grow others uh, in a really significant way? And, uh, you know, what do I need in order to become that person? Awesome. Now, this is an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for Thanks, joining Brian. and uh, sharing, sharing your story. Really great to talk to you. Thanks. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that great interview. And thanks again for stopping by the Just Get Started podcast. Uh, grateful to have you here. And if I could just make one quick ask before you run along on your day, you know, I've grown this podcast organically over the last three plus years, and it's from the great listeners that pick up, you know, a quote or a key learning or just enjoy the entertainment of the podcast and they share it out to their audience. They leave a review on Apple Podcasts, whatever it is. Um, and I'd ask that for you as well. If you've made it to this point and are listening in, 
Um, a lot of the podcast uh, platforms that you listen on have a share button right there where you can share it out to your audience on various platforms. So I would be so appreciative if you wouldn't mind taking a quick second to do that um, if you really enjoyed this episode. So thanks again. I'm happy to connect online. I always love to meet new people. So if you want to go to my website, brianandraco.com, or connect with me, I'm at brianandraco basically everywhere on Instagram, Twitter, even Clubhouse, that new app that's out there, uh, you name it. So uh, follow me online and uh, certainly look forward to connecting further. I hope you all have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Mm -hmm.